18 to 27. Um, Amos is a small little book. It's in the Old Testament. It's after Psalms. It's after Isaiah. I think it's right after Joel. So if you're in the Old Testament, just keep on moving back through there until you can find it. I apologize. I don't have the page number. 1426. 1426. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Should look up there, huh? That would help me if I did that. So um, while you're looking for this, it's important to know that the people that, had, um, that Amos was speaking to, um, they were asking for the, they were calling for the day of the Lord, thinking that would bring to an end their troubles. But God said, you don't know what you're asking for. The day of the Lord would bring justice, and justice would bring the punishment the people deserve for their sins. So let's hear what this passage says. I invite you to turn the lights back up so people uh, are able to see that a little bit better. This reading is from the New um, International Version. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? pitch dark without a day of brightness, a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of, of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. May God add the, add the blessing to the hearing of these words. Uh, last week, we started a short mini-series on worship, which is going to last for one more week before Advent. Uh, during this mini-series, we're looking at a couple of examples from the Old Testament of times when people did really bad worship. Their worship was so bad that it made things worse or even was actively sinful. A lot of times we think we're safe if we show up to worship no matter what happens. And certainly we do want to worship God. And there's no need to be paralyzed with fear. God can forgive us even if we don't worship perfectly because no one does. Uh, but there's good reason to come to worship and really think about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Last week we went through Jonah's prayer from the belly of the big fish. And you can access that sermon and pretty much any others on YouTube or podcast if you want. Uh, but anyway, um, Jonah says a lot of pretty and flowery words, but the actual meaning of his prayer was completely wrong. He was praying a prayer thanking God for saving him when he should have been praying a prayer of repentance. He thought that his relationship with God was all hunky-dory. And because of all that, his wor his worship really did, all his worship really did was justify him in his sin. He was delusional but he was on a collision course with reality, and eventually reality would catch up with him. 
Ultimately, he wasn't worshiping the one true God, but the kind of God that he made up in his head that approved of whatever he was doing. One of the things that's dangerous about worship is that it can confirm you in your delusions. You can convince yourself in worship that God is on your side and that everything you're doing is approved by him when really God is calling you to reverse your course. We saw that the way that you live your life affects the way that you worship. If you live your life doing what God wants you to do, you might end up worshiping, worshiping in a way that only makes your life better. But if you live in a, in a way that worships, um, that, that doesn't do what God wants you to do, you're going to live in a way that makes your life worse, and it becomes a vicious cycle, just like it did with Jonah. A really similar thing is going on in this part of Amos as well. The Israelites are doing all of their worship stuff, but God isn't happy with any of it. The worship is only making things worse, and it's so bad that God says in our scripture, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the din of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Their worship is so bad that God actually hates it. So if the way that we live affects the way that we worship, and if worship is dangerous because it can confirm our delusions, it might be good to have some idea of what delusions people in our culture are more likely to fall into. In 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith interviewed over 3,000 Christian teenagers to get an idea of what they thought Christianity was all about. The name he gave the belief system that he heard from them wasn't Christianity, but moralistic therapeutic deism. It's called moralistic because it believes that God is really concerned with people doing good stuff, unlike in the Bible where he's concerned with saving the world and bringing it back to peace and goodness. It's therapeutic because it's meant primarily to make people feel better, while the Bible says that Christianity is about God's huge rescue plan that's playing out in the world that we live in and where we are invited to participate. And it's deism because it says that God doesn't really interact with the world. Unlike what the Bible says, where God is intimately involved in the world that he created to the extent that he entered into it in history as a human being, and he suffered for it, and he died for it. Christian Smith said that there were five basic beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism. One, there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and in most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now you may not have heard these words, these beliefs in church, or at least not heard them in this way, but I feel like we're constantly tempted to think in exactly these ways. And this isn't just a problem for teenagers, because the teenagers in this study got these ideas from somewhere. And that's the basic cultural understanding of what Christianity is, and we're all influenced by it. I feel tempted at, at times to think that the, that the central goal of my life is to be happy and to feel good about myself. I often treat God as if he's only important when I need something from him. All of those things are second nature to us, largely because we're steeped in this modern Western culture that we live in. Of course, every culture has really good things about it that make it easier to follow God, as well as some pitfalls that make it harder. In ancient Israel, people were constantly tempted to worship other gods and to make statues of them and to bow down to them. 
In our culture, that's not really something we're tempted to do. But in our culture, we're also tempted to think that God is a means to an end. We like buying things to make ourselves feel good, and sometimes we're tempted to think that God is just one more product that we can get to improve our lives so we can be happy and feel good about ourselves. And the way that sometimes affects our theology is called moralistic therapeutic deism. It says that God is a product that doesn't cost very much and that he doesn't really ask very much of us besides being a good person, which we can define in whatever way we want as long as we're the people that are good. <laughs> in other words, we can do and believe whatever we want and God is fine with it. The idea is that God is a product, just like a pair of jeans or a Netflix subscription, that has a relatively low cost, just like a pair of jeans or a Netflix subscription, and pretty good benefits, just like a pair of jeans or a Netflix subscription. It says that God, like the products we buy, exists for our benefit, with a plan for our lives to make our lives easier and to make us happy. But it says that God sure doesn't take over your life or shape your identity. But true Christianity says something different. It says that humans are acting functionally when they live for God's sake, submitting themselves to him and sacrificing their entire lives. But in so doing, they find their lives. It says that being a Christian will often make things harder. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. But nevertheless, it's hard to get the moralistic therapeutic deism out of your mind. The book of Amos tells the story of the people of Israel, who sometimes had a similar attitude about God that we have. They also felt that God was a product they could buy. The passage begins by talking about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord in the Bible is the day when God judges his enemies and he rewards the people who are faithful to him. Normally in the Old Testament, this is talking about how God fights for Israel against foreign enemies which are trying to destroy it. It's not just a normal day where Israel wins a battle, but a day of supernatural darkness, unimaginable violence, earthquakes, random resurrections from the dead. The rich and powerful who are in control of every part of society are found to be completely helpless. For the people of God, the day of the Lord is like the part at the end of the superhero movie when the big villain realizes he's defeated and says, oh no. Kings of really strong armies cower in fear because they have no chance against the God who made them and, who, and can unmake them. It was the greatest hope of the people of Israel who lived in the crossroads of a few huge civilizations and always felt like it was always at their mercy. Their only hope was for God to come and deliver them from their enemies and to strengthen their kingdom so it would be just as powerful as Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, or Persia. The day of the Lord is exactly what they want. Israel will be restored to its national glory. Justice will be done. The people that God favors will be vindicated against some of the most evil possible enemies. But the passage starts with God asking, why do you want the day of the Lord? Of course, the answer would be something like, are you kidding? It's all we've ever wanted. But for Israel, God says, the day of the Lord will be darkness and not light. It's not going to be a good time. Why should you want the day of the Lord, Israel? And slowly it dawns on the reader that the day of the Lord isn't for Israel anymore. 
the people that God has chosen don't benefit from the judgment of the world like they expected. The day of the Lord is the day that God punishes his enemies and rewards his chosen people for his steadfast suffering. But his chosen people, Israel, has become his enemy. Now the judgment which was meant for Israel's enemies is rightfully cast on Israel itself. Israel, God's chosen people, is being judged because they have become God's very own enemy. What could they have possibly done to deserve that? Well, if you read the rest of Amos, you basically know that the reason is that Israel is a mess in every sense of the word. There's no part of the worship of God that they did not get wrong egregiously. So let's take a, few, a, a short sample of a few of the things they got wrong. First, they got the relationship between God and the king completely wrong. God gave the Israelites a king to rule over them. In other words, God came first, not the king. The king gets his power entirely from God and not the other way around. But for Israel and Amos' time, they got this exactly backwards. Instead, they changed what they think about God in order to make sure everyone knows that the king is in charge. The whole point of worship was ultimately just to affirm that God approved of the king, even if God didn't approve of the king. For instance, if you turn to Amos 7, Amos has just prophesied that God would allow a foreign empire to come and kill the king and take Israel into exile. This, of course, is exactly what happened in the end. But the high priest, who was appointed by the king, says, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, it is a temple of the kingdom. See what he says? This temple we built isn't God's temple. It's the king's temple. So we don't care what God has to say if he doesn't affirm the king. When they do this, God simply becomes a tool for the king rather than the other way around. And God doesn't take kindly to this. This is an incredibly common way that the church has gotten worship wrong throughout history. Think about how many wars happened between Christian countries where both sides were absolutely certain that they were on God's side and they were punishing the infidel. If it's happened this often in history, then it'd be good to check yourself every once in a while. Is God a tool that people are using to keep themselves in power? It's happened before, it can happen again. Make sure when you're worshiping that you're not just serving God so he can make you more powerful, but also make sure you're not serving a false God that is meant to help other people become more powerful. There were many poor people in Israel whose worship was also corrupted by the rich. Both of those things are idolatry. Second, they got the relationship between God's people and the poor among them completely wrong. In the Torah, God gave a whole bunch of systems that were meant to take care of the poor. Servants would be liberated every 50 years. Food would be left in the fields to be picked up by the poor. Judges would be appointed that wouldn't take bribes, all that kind of stuff. Israel ignored all of it. The very first thing that Amos says against Israel is, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They appointed judges that would take the bribes of the rich because they're easy to control. That way the rich could do whatever they want and the poor couldn't hold them accountable. And worse, the Israelites were offering to God the money out of their ill-gotten gains. 
it became a regular part of their worship to offer to God some of the money that they had stolen. But they didn't know that God doesn't need their money, and he can't be bribed like the judges are bribed. In a rich culture, we need to be careful with how we use money. The way that the economy works today is really complicated, and it can be hard to know how to act justly in it. Maybe some of the products you buy are cheap because of some evil going on halfway across the globe. Is your banana really cheap because the company that produced it invaded a South American government? That actually happened in 1952. It can be really tough or even impossible to understand how we get our money and whether it's being done justly. But we still need to be careful. Remember when you tithe that it matters how you got the money you're giving to God. If you got it dishonestly, give it back to the person who deserves it instead of offering up to God your defiled money. Giving God stolen money is bad worship. The way the Israelites lived their lives completely ruined their worship. You can't spend six days out of the week ignoring God and then act like you care about him on Sunday. When the Israelites did that, God was actually offended. God says, come to Bethel, which is one of their temples, and sin. Come to Gilgal, which was another one of their temples, and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. For so you love to do, people of Israel. They love to worship God. That's not their problem. Their problem was that their lives made it obvious that their worship wasn't real. You can't put a bunch of money in the offering plate and say, I'm totally devoted to you, God, and then disobey God's law over and over. That means your worship wasn't real. All of this adds up to God saying in no uncertain terms that the worship services and sacrifices and holidays which the Israelites engaged in were sin. All of the things that were most geared toward making God pleased with them were the most offensive toward him. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Get the racket of your worship songs away from me. All of the stuff, which was like going to church and doing Bible study and singing hymns, were nothing but sin in and of themselves. Worshiping God on Sunday just so you can feel better about yourself from Monday through Saturday without changing your life is simply sin. It treats God like the king treated God. God is a tool for yourself, not the other way around. If you think like this, then God just exists to assuage your guilt, nothing more, nothing less. And God doesn't take kindly to that. What Amos warns here is that you cannot go on, on sinning egregiously, knowing that you're sinning, without a care in the world from Monday through Saturday, and then go to church on Sunday and expect everything to be normal and for God to be happy with your worship. The way you live affects the way you worship. When God comes in judgment, Amos says, he's coming straight for the places of worship. Because when the people are unclean, the, wor the worship is the most offensive part. God says, on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. In other words, the first things that he destroys are their temples, because those are the things that are most offensive to him. The people of Israel think they can serve every other god on earth from Monday through Saturday and pretend that their loyalty was really to God all along on Sunday. God destroys his own altars first, because the worship is the most offensive thing to him in this whole sinful country. He basically says, let's stop pretending that you have any loyalty to me. 
I'll destroy the altars you built to me, and you'll be left with other puny gods. This all seems hopeless, but Amos gives one possibility for making sure that God is on your side on the day of the Lord. In chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Seat me and live, but do not seat Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or across over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. In other words, all your worshiping, worship services are doing, making things worse for you. They're disgusting. But seek me, not your temples. And how do they seek him? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In other words, return to me with your actual lives. Let your actions fit your words. Talk is cheap, obedience is costly. Just like we saw last week, the way you live affects the way you worship. If you live looking out to find the right kind of products to buy to make you happier and more entertained, then you're going to treat God like just one more of them. And then you'll find that you're offering to God out of your defiled money, and that's sinful worship. And just like we saw with Jonah, your worship will confirm your delusions, and it'll be even harder to change your path. If you live your life in a way that is really only interested in having positive experiences, a lot of times you'll end up worshiping a god that's really similar to the god of moralistic therapeutic deism. The god you worship will end up looking really permissive, letting you do whatever you want as long as it's not too bad, which of course you'll define in such a way as so that you're never the one who's doing the thing that's too bad. Your worship will never ask you to give up your life for God or for your neighbor, and that will make your life unfulfilling because it keeps you from doing what you were made to do. But your worship will only confirm your path if you don't repent. Whatever the case, if these things happen, your delusions will only last as long as it takes for reality to come to slap you in the face. Mercifully, this might just be a really unpleasant experience where you're confronted with what the real God really looks like. In the worst case, it'll be God's own terrifying, righteous, and fair judgment on the next day of the Lord. On the other hand, when you're doing God's will, you'll get to know him better and better. And when that happens, you get to worship him in a way that transforms you to serve him better. So when we come to worship, we really want to examine our own lives and make sure that they impact our worship for the better and not for the worse. Because really, we never stop worshiping. So it makes sense that when we come to service on Sunday, that it would be affected by the rest of our lives. In fact, humans were made to worship from the very beginning. Every act we were made to do was to worship God. Whether by attending his creation, or by eating together with him, or by resting as he did. And if that's the case, then it isn't surprising that every act we do is still an act of worship. The question is, is if that worship is idolatry or the true worship of the one true God. When you eat food, are you worshiping at the altar of taste and pleasure? Or are you worshiping God, giving thanks to the one who made your taste buds? When you go to work, are you worshiping the God, the money that you get? Or are you worshiping the God who gave you a mission and a vocation to complete through your work? Every act of our lives is an act of worship to something or another. So, of course, that affects the way that we worship on Sunday morning. But that means that we need the Spirit of God to cleanse our worship or we are hopeless. There's only one way 
to worship rightly, and that's if God cleanses our worship. It cleanses our minds. Because we're practicing all we'd want to worship. So I'm about to give a prayer that's called the Talit for Purity, um, if you want to look it up. And it's been really helpful for me when I go to worship, and it might be helpful for you. It says, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen.